All right. First, I want to say I appreciate Carl you doing this. Carl was a guest this morning. Uh, we were talking about him being a speaker in the future. But since we need to punt, he's willing to and just happen to have a program that we connected and <clears throat> we're good to go. Uh, there is a very long bio here, but I won't go through it all because it's really small print. Uh, Carl is the founder and executive director of Gallant Few, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization formed in 2010 dedicated to helping veterans transition to civilian lives full of purpose and hope. Uh, Carl was in the military for, it looks like, quite some time. Uh, First Ranger Battalion, uh, Jump Master, Airborne Assault Schools, Command General Staff, etc., Armor basic, uh, lots of lots of army things here. It looks like um, he lives in Trophy Club, and we appreciate you being here, Carl. I was a Boy Scout once, so always be prepared, right? Before I get started, uh, there's let's say there's a hundred people in the room, roughly. I didn't do a, a quick count, but how many veterans? Can I have you stand? If you're a military veteran, stand up. Six. I said there's a hundred people in the room. Census says that 6% of the U.S. population right now are veterans. So, so I didn't do the math, but that's pretty, pretty good, huh? Uh, post 9-11, how many of you are post 9-11? One? That's what uh, the census also says. One veteran in 100 U.S. citizens. One person is a post 9-11 veteran, meaning they deployed after 9-11. So the numbers bear out. That's important as we get to talking about this. So I served in the 1st Ranger Battalion during Desert Storm. And the Ranger Creed starts off with recognizing that I volunteered as a Ranger, fully knowing the hazards of my chosen profession. Fully knowing the hazards is the important part there. And the last, one of the last slides that I'm going to show you today is uh, Carroll Southlake High School. I spoke to them last Veterans Day at a school assembly. And the kids that stood up when I said, how many of you are going into the military, they were not born when the 9-11 attacks happened. They're going into the military today fully knowing the hazards that I'm going to talk about here in a minute because they're all very connected with what's going on in the world of veterans and military. And you need to know as well. Uh, one of the things that I did not ask, I, I usually do, uh, how many of you have someone in the military in your family, in your immediate family? Okay, so quite a bit more. Okay, how about somebody that you work with that's a veteran that's been in the military? Okay, so again, quite a few. So, uh, but about half the room didn't. So half, half of the folks in the United States today, or more than half, don't have a personal connection with anyone in the military. So what I'm going to talk about may be some new things for you. All right, so uh, one of the things, one of the reasons that I left the military was because of a helicopter crash that killed those 12 men. It happened on October 29th, 1992, and it changed the course of my life. It made me reorient, refocus on my family two young daughters at the time, and I was the assistant S3 of the 1st Ranger Battalion. That's the most lethal professional fighting force in the United States Army. And to work my way into that position and then to have this event change my priorities as I left the military and tried to learn how to become a civilian, I struggled. I had a very hard time going from the sense of purpose that led me to work with men like this to trying to just make money and have a life. So... I know you can't tell a whole lot of difference in between the pictures on the left and the right, so I'll orient you to this. So uh, Joe Votel was my boss on the left there. He's the major, uh, a little taller than me. 
And on the right, he's a four-star general. He just retired about a month ago from the Army. Uh, Joe was the S3, the operations officer, the 1st Ranger Battalion, when I walked, when I decided to quit. I walked into his office and said, Joe, I'm done. I'm leaving the Army. My priorities have changed. Uh, I'm not going to be part of the team anymore. That's like the Dallas Cowboys finally getting back to the Super Bowl again and one of those starting linemen going in and saying, hey, I quit. Uh, I just, I don't want to be on this team anymore. And that's, it's, it's something that's very difficult. It's very emotional. And when you do that, you kind of think that maybe uh, you're just, they're not going to want to be around you anymore. So you start building up this wall, this separation between your old friends from the military and, and your current life. 9-11 happened. He was the Ranger Regimental Commander. If you remember seeing the video, black and white, of the Rangers that were parachuting into Afghanistan in October of 2001, he was the first guy out of the aircraft. Uh, I was, at that time, still in the reserve system, so I sent him an email, just kind of blind into the, into the ether that said, hey, Joe, I'm proud of you. I'm jealous. I wished I could have been there. Please pass my regards on to anybody you know, that I know. Two days later, he emailed me from Afghanistan. And he thanked me for his note. He told me that he'd passed that along. And he ended up inviting me a year and a half later to come to his change of command back at Fort Benning. Every two years at Fort Benning, they do what's called Ranger Rendezvous. And all the Rangers go back to Fort Benning for the commander's change of command. It is a big freaking deal. And it's happening next July. Uh, and I'm going to get to go back there again. Rangers from, there's still some World War II guys that come. I became friends with some World War II Rangers while I was there. And uh, he invited me to come back. It was the first time that I had gone to this event since I was on active duty. And so I'm going back to Fort Benning, and I'm thinking, I don't know if they're going to like me being here because I'm the guy that quit. And now they jumped into history. They're in the history books. He'll be in the Ranger Hall of Fame. He's not eligible because he just retired. But now am I one of these guys that's coming and trying to rub up against the glory that, that you know they all achieved? So I was very nervous about going. And when I got there... I was welcomed with open arms. It was almost like I'd never left. It was such a healing experience for me to go back that as I started talking to the men, now there are some women there, but at that time it was all men. As I started talking to them, I started learning about the things that they were going through. And when you serve in that unit and your back hurts or you got a little traumatic brain injury or you're not sleeping at night or you have to drink to process some things, you don't go to your squad leader and say, hey, I'm, uh, my back hurts, because then they say, well, then you can't be a ranger anymore, you're out. So you hide all of that stuff. And as I'm talking to them, I'm seeing the things that are coming with alcohol, with divorces, with injuries that they don't report. I have uh, an artificial right hip, and I spent a lot of years jumping out of airplanes at night, and when you jump out of an airplane at night, it's like if I were to sit down in a chair right here, only there's no chair, and I just go backwards. That's kind of what it's like. And the VA says, oh, no, your, your hip injury, that doesn't have anything to do with your military service. But I never reported that I had any hip injury because I wanted to stay in that unit, right? So that's what happens. You, you hide all of that stuff, and it comes back later on to haunt you in a couple of different ways. I'm going to talk about a couple of those things. So why is this organization needed? This is from last January. Veteran unemployment has, since 9-11, been about 20% worse than non-veterans. This last year, it's kind of equalized. It's about the same as with non-veterans um, in terms of post-9-11 veterans. When you look at Desert Storm veterans or earlier Vietnam veterans, their unemployment rate is almost zero. 
veterans from my era, but when you get post 9-11, it's higher than the non-veteran. We've been at war now for 18 years, so it's not like you can say, well, it's because they got out and they went to college and, you know, that's why, no, that, that's not it. But it's harder for a veteran to get a job than a non-veteran. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I'm not going to go through all of that today. But one of the reasons is that uh, veterans have a hard time staying in school. I, uh, I coached a Ranger veteran who was in class, and he really wanted to listen. And if you imagine you've left high school, you've gone into the military for four or six or eight or ten years, and then you come back, and now you're going to college with kids that are, they're not just six years younger than you, they're like five emotional generations younger than you because you have seen things that they have no idea, right? So your emotional maturity is much higher. So you're sitting in a classroom and you want to learn and you're listening to this teacher and the other kids in the classroom are doing typical kid stuff, throwing spitballs or making noise or playing video games or whatever. And when you're in the military and you want to get somebody's attention, you slam your fist on the desk and you say, shut the F up. That's what this guy did in the classroom. Guess what happens? We got a crazy veteran with post-traumatic stress. He gets thrown out of class and can't come back. It's hard for them to deal with the realities that kids that are much younger emotionally than them are, are doing, right? So we have to have a way that we can have a conversation with these veterans before they go into that classroom environment that says, this is coming, watch out for it. Don't react the way you would in the military, right? Just It's heading them off. It's, we do that in the military. We prepare them for all kinds of dangerous things because we talk to them about it ahead of time. But then when they become civilians, we don't talk to them about it ahead of time. Uh, the VA, has anybody heard the number 22? There's 22 kill. There's mission 22. There's all these 22 organizations out there. When I started doing this 10 years ago, the VA said 18 veterans a day committed suicide. Then they did a study that said 22 a day. Over the last four years, they've done two studies that say 20 a day. 20 veterans a day take their own lives. Anybody, is that a surprise to anybody that that number exists? Uh, it's a little bit uh, fine print, but down towards the bottom there, it says the average number who died by suicide unchanged at 20. Uh, but what's really important is that 65% of those veterans that take their own lives are over the age of 50. So if you're a veteran that's over the age of 50, your possibility for suicide has gone way up. You would think that a kid comes back from Afghanistan, saw terrible things, can't deal with being a civilian, and kills himself. No, what happens is they come back full of these high expectations. They're going to achieve, they're going to do all these wonderful things, and then they run into a conflict at school, or they have trouble getting a job, or the VA doesn't recognize a disability, or they try to hide that stuff and they drink. All of those things create money problems, it creates relationship problems, it creates employment problems. And when you take that out 10, 20, 30 years, and you've been divorced three times, and you've had 20 jobs, and you're like, my life is never going to be as good as it was when I was back in the military, then you lose purpose and hope. And if you lose purpose and hope, why live? That's why I think 65% uh, of those veterans are older veterans. Since 9-11, that's over 130,000 souls that have taken their own lives. There were 130,000 people in the last 18 years that died from the bird flu? Do you think the media would be on top of that? Would they be screaming if 7,000 people a year died of some cause? You don't hear anything about it in the, in the media, nothing. So why is that? I think the number one issue with uh, a veteran's successful transition is isolation. Everybody, all of your successful business people, your proud individuals, you don't want to go to a friend of yours and say, 
yeah, I'm drinking too much or business really sucks and I'm staying awake at night. You don't do that, right? Well, in the military, you don't do that either. Only you're trying to process now things that are much more significantly in terms of emotional and mental impact. And when you combine on top of that post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury, then you have somebody that says, I'm not going to tell my friends, even the friends they were in the military, I'm not going to tell my friends that I'm having an issue. And when you look on Facebook, all of their friends are having great lives. They're posting pictures of kitties and you know babies and happy stuff, which is what that veteran is doing too, right? So everybody's putting up this false front on Facebook. And then that veteran that's struggling thinks, well, everybody else is doing great. There must be something wrong with me. Who wants to admit to their friends there's something wrong with them? So it's this vicious cycle that just continues to build. That isolation continues to build. They stay in that box until the box explodes. And that box may explode because of a DUI or a divorce or run out of money, whatever it is. When they finally pop up, if they pop up, then it's a significant emotional event for everybody involved to help that veteran get a reset. So let's fix it. How do we do that? I talked about the numbers earlier. In the Metroport Chamber of Commerce area, which is why I say Metroport down there, it's about 38,000 veterans. These numbers are two years old. It's probably a little higher than that. Um, 1,900 are post-9-11. So that's a 10 to 1 ratio of older veterans like me to younger veterans like Raymond. So how can we, can we get them connected? Can we get them to do things together where if you think about the big brothers, big sisters model, one of the things that I touch on in my bio is as a kid, I was one of the first little brothers when big brothers started back in the late 60s. My father was a career army sergeant, retired as sergeant major. He walked out of my family when I was four. So I was man of the house until I was 12 and my mom remarried. And Big Brothers, now it's Big Brothers, Big Sisters, but Big Brothers was a huge part of my life when I was young because I had somebody that told me I could be something, that I could take the circumstances of my life didn't have to define me, that I could be greater than that. That's what, when we connect younger veterans, that's Zach on the left and I'm on the right, when we connect a younger veteran and an older veteran, there's a natural chemistry that happens, and you can have a conversation that says, talk to me about what you're doing. You don't have to tell me you're drinking. I know you are. Tell me how much it is. Okay, I'm going to double that because I know you're lying to me. Now let's talk about what the reality is. How do you process that? How do you stop that? How do you learn to make different choices? Um, one of the things that we have done to try to get ahead of the power curve, this is at Fort Benning, Georgia. That's the non-commissioned officers of the 3rd Ranger Battalion, all of them in that room. We've been working very closely with the Active Duty Ranger Regiment so that we can get in front of the transition cycle. All of these men have anywhere between four and, and 100 soldiers that report to them. So if we can tell them about some of these things that are coming, when they have a ranger that's leaving the military, they will connect them with us. Then we can make sure that ranger is connected. Well, I should point out, we're not a geographically oriented organization. My office is right here in my pocket. Right? We're a relationship-focused organization. So when one of those men says, or now women, I want to go live in Kansas City and I want to study accounting, I'm going to find a Ranger veteran that lives in Kansas City that is a CPA or that's a partner in a firm, and I'm going to get them connected first thing. I do the same thing with Marines. I do the same thing with Airmen and uh, fewer Navy folks because there's just not very many of them. Some of the things that we do to try to encourage this camaraderie, this is in Oklahoma. Uh, there's a... A guy up there that was on um, one of the knife shows, and, and my 
brain is escaping me which one it is now, but he has a forge up there. His name is Billy Helton on the left. He lets us bring veterans up there so they can make some simple like steak turners and little knives and things. And then we go out on one of the reservoirs there and go fishing. And up on the top right there, that's a spoonbill fish. I don't know if you're familiar with a spoonbill. Anybody know what a spoonbill fish is? It's leftover from the dinosaurs. It has to be that and the cockroaches were the only thing that survived. This is the ugliest fish in the world. And, uh, and it's as tall as a man is. And it weighs over 100 pounds. And they're only allowed, if you have a license, you can only harvest two a year. But you don't catch them. You snag them. And you pull them from the bottom up, and they're really nice and calm until they break the top and they realize somebody's pulling them up. And then they go crazy. But uh, it's a great experience for these veterans to go because we have some men from Oklahoma that bring their boats and they take these veterans out. And through this process, we're able to talk about some of their experiences. Uh, We do a lot of rock climbing here at uh, Summit Gym and Grapevine. For the last six years, the Metroport Rotary Club has funded a grant for me to take veterans indoor rock climbing. And over the last five and a half years, we put over 120 veterans through that program. Joey comes all the time. He's one of our non-veteran coaches that lines up with and helps some of the younger ones. Raymond has come and climbed. I think Jeff's been there once or twice. Um, When we get, we have a lot of fun with the Marine veterans because we bring crayons for snacks for them in between the the climbing routes. But on the left there, uh, that's a Marine veteran named Mark. And Mark had uh, an explosive round go off and he lost his right leg at the hip. He lost, lost his left hand in uh, below his elbow. Half of his right hand is gone, and one of his eyes is gone. And he brought his daughter to come to the climbing club. And we see this guy over there that's missing half of his parts, and we know he's got to be a veteran. So we start talking to him. We encouraged him. He got the VA to give him a special little climbing foot. He has this little baby foot that he climbs with that we make fun of him all the time because he has a baby foot. But he, the first time that he climbed, he couldn't get halfway up one of the easiest routes. Well, if I didn't have one leg and one hand, I probably couldn't either. But he kept coming back, and we kept encouraging him. And now he climbs three or four routes a night when he comes. And he really looks forward to it, and he plugs in with us, and we have a great time. And a lot of friendships have developed from that. We take the groups that come and indoor rock climb with us, and we go. That picture on the right is uh, Joshua Tree, California. So a couple of times a year, we take a group of veterans out there. We have one at Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, coming up in September. We'll do one somewhere in the Midwest, but so far it's been East and West Coast. But when we do that, we don't include alcohol in our events. There's a lot of veteran organizations that bring alcohol and make that part of it. We don't do that because we don't know there might be one out of ten veterans there that that alcohol triggers something that ruins the rest of their life, and we're not we're just not going to take that risk. So we go out. We're away from everything else. Phones don't work out there, and we have a chance to talk about the realities. I talk to them about how how to strengthen their minds, how to overcome some of these things that they're going through. Uh, Vet Expo happens here uh, three years ago. We did the Raider Project Transition Seminar in this room and the next room. We've moved out. This October, we're going to be at Cinnamon Creek Ranch. And we bring in veteran speakers from around the country to talk about the realities of transition. It's not uh, a feel-good type weekend at all. Last year, one of our guys got up, and the the topic of his talk was, uh, let's get uncomfortable. And the first thing he did was put a logo of Pornhub up on the thing. And he said, that is destroying more of your lives and relationships than anything else that's going on. We talk very graphically about the things that they're dealing with and how do we move past that and how do we strengthen our lives. Uh, Anybody know who Simon Sinek is? Simon is going to speak at our Friday night. He's coming in for free. 
He's going to speak at our, we're, we're not letting people come for free, <laughs> but, uh, but we will, we'll have more information about that later, but uh, he'll be at our Friday night banquet, and, uh, and he's going to help us kick it off. That's another picture from last year's. You may, you may remember, how am I doing on time? Okay. Um, earlier this year, there was uh, a thing on the news about a C-130 that had a Marine aircraft that had crashed in Louisiana, and they talked about how the engine wasn't maintained properly, and it sheared off the propeller and caused the thing to crash. That killed a Marine Special Operations team. Every man that was on that team died. <clears throat> One year before, a helicopter crashed off the coast of Florida and killed a Marine Special Operations team. It was the exact same team. It was the, the guys that replaced those guys died in the, in the airplane the following year. Uh, we worked closely with the, the gunny sergeant that was over all of them because he wasn't with either one of the teams, but he was responsible for them. I mean, imagine what he's going through. I, I know because I lost 12 guys what that feels like. So, so I can communicate with him about how to process that stuff. But what a lot of organizations miss is the impact of the families that are left over. That's one of the wives of one of the Marines that was on that aircraft. Since she has since given birth. This was taken last fall. And whenever we do an event, we roll some of them into our events. We have uh, sons of, of some of the men that died. We bring the, the sons out so they can hang out with men that knew their father, men that are like their father, so they, they can still kind of connect with that. And that's something that I think is incredibly valuable. We started the Metroport Veteran Association uh, a couple of years ago, the second Saturday of every month. We go to Meet You Anywhere Barbecue and Trophy Club. And we have 120 veterans now that are on the roster. We usually have between 30 and 50 that come. We've had, we have a World War II veteran that comes every year or every uh, month. Uh, Mylon comes. He looks like a World War II veteran, but he's really not that old. <laughs> and, and we, but we have a lot of fun. I mean, that's one of the things that when you're in the military, you're always poking fun at the people that you work with. But it's done in a way that strengthens your friendship. And so we, we love continuing to do that. Hopefully that strengthens our friendship, Mylon, when I said it. <laughs> Last October, um, the Alliance Air Show invited me to help them set up a veteran village. So we invited nine other local small veteran nonprofits to come out and set up out at the air show. It rained like crazy, so probably nobody went because it was an absolute miserable experience. But they liked us, so they're going to bring us back, and they're going to give us a better location this year so we'll be closer to the flight line. But we want people here to know one of the groups that comes is called Dive Heart. Has anybody heard of Dive Heart? They're a little nonprofit that they're all scuba divers. And they take a veteran who is is an amputee or, or paralyzed, and they have a special scuba setup they put on them that has a pressurized face mask so they can't accidentally kick out their regulator and swallow water and then they take them underwater and when you're paralyzed and you can't walk and and now you're kind of floating around the bottom and your feet are touching the bottom you know it's like they're walking again so they do amazing things but nobody knows about them so they they don't have enough funds to advertise and do you know lots of uh, billboards and things. So we make sure that they get people that come out to the air show at least get exposure to them and some other organizations. Um, there's a, a group called Game Day Productions that's uh, right around the corner over here by the airport. They have coordinated with me the last two years. We've given cars through the hometown Chevy dealers program to veterans. That's Wichita State University, which is my alma mater. Got to go back there and surprise an Air Force Special Operations veteran and his family with a car. That is a, a really special event when we can do that. 
And uh, unless you know anybody in this room, I challenge you to tell me which ones are the teachers and which ones are the students. That's Carroll High School last uh, Veterans Day when I spoke to that group. I I will remind you that it's been more than 18 years since the attacks. The kids that are enlisting in the military right now were not born when 9-11 happened, yet they still go in. They are all at risk for increased suicide. They're all at risk when they leave to have alcohol issues, to have anger issues, to have substance abuse issues, to have traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress. And as long as I'm living and breathing, we're going to be here to help them when they leave. Wherever they choose to live, we're going to make sure that they're connected with another veteran that can help them process those experiences. Some of the outcomes. uh, We do this... uh, Without going into our entire philosophy, we believe in functional fitness. We threw out the term wellness a long time ago. We don't talk emotional wellness. We talk emotional fitness. So can you measure your level of emotional fitness? Because if you can measure it, then you can improve it, right? So emotional fitness to us is understanding the things that go on in your mind, the questions that you ask yourself. If you're trying to overcome a habit, if you're trying to stop drinking or smoking or lose weight or get a better job or find new friends, whatever it is, and you're not able to do that, typically in our heads we say, why can't I? Why didn't I? Why don't I? Why, why, why was I so weak that I had to have another cigarette? And the, how, what's the only way you can answer a why question? What's the first word to a why question? Because, right? Why am I speaking today? Because the speaker didn't come. So there's, there's um, that, that because answer is giving you a reason and an excuse to continue the behavior. Why can't I quit smoking or using smokeless tobacco? Well, because when you're in the military, tobacco kept you alert. That kept you alive. That kept your buddies alive. So, you know, yeah, you're probably going to die of cancer, but at least it was for a good cause, right? That's the way that your brain works through these things. But if you can stop that and say, what do I need to do to stop smoking? You can't answer that with because. You have to have a real reason. And, uh, and when we teach veterans that thought process and use some mind imagery things. And it's not only for veterans. I'd, if you're a veteran, I'll coach you for free. If you're a non-veteran, I'll charge you 200 bucks. But I'm happy to talk anybody through this program. And it, it does those kinds of things. It reduces worry. It reduces self-blame. It reduces anger. And in terms of a veteran's world, it's huge. I've helped, uh, I helped a Marine Corps special operations veteran who was an alcoholic who couldn't get a job, whose ex-wife had said, you can never see your son again took all visitation away from him. I coached him within 60 days. He called me. He's got tears. He's choking up on the phone. He says, my ex-wife just called and said, who are you and what have you done with my ex-husband? And oh, by the way, this weekend, if you want your son, you can have him. Uh, Our climbing program has, uh, when we did our survey, what I found amazing was 72% say that other areas in their life have improved, not just the climbing. So, it's, it's something that once we bring them in, we break that isolation shell, we get them connected, other things in their life start improving as well. We have a family of organizations because we organize around groups of veterans. Darby Projects, Army Rangers, Raider Projects, Marine Corps Veterans, WAM Project, Women with a Mission. It's any branch of the service but all women because I'm not a female veteran, right? I, my experience was all men. So I'm going to say something or do something that's going to offend a female veteran. I don't want to go there. So we have women that can initiate that conversation. And then if they need me to coach them, I'll coach them. But that's the entry point. Uh, VetRec is a Detroit-focused program. It's our only geographically focused program. Wings Level is Air Force, and Medicine Wheel Society is American Indian Veterans.
Uh, I already talked about that, but I always like to show myself in bike shorts to a group. I don't know why I did that. Um, but w- well, let me give you a quick example. Uh, this is why I did that, because those questions that were run through your head, I had a Marine Special Operations group that was out in Colorado on a retreat, and I took them through the functional emotional fitness coaching. And I get back on a Friday night, Saturday morning. This is a year after I started riding a bike, because after I had my hip replacement, I couldn't run anymore, couldn't play racquetball anymore. I like to drink craft beer moderately, and if I don't do some exercises, I'm going to be 800 pounds. So I got to ride a bike and rock climb. But uh, I get out Saturday morning, and I had set an objective for myself of maintaining a 15-mile-an-hour pace. Well, I'm two miles in. My earbuds say, your average pace per mile is 14.2 miles an hour. What do you think the first question that popped into my head was? Why can't I maintain a 15-mile-an-hour pace? The immediate answer was, well, because you were in Colorado all week, because you're probably dehydrated, because the time zone changed. So all these because things were going to make it okay for me to not meet my objective recognized it, flipped it, said, what do I need to do to maintain a 15-mile-an-hour pace? It was like somebody dumped a bucket of answers on my head. Hydrate, push, don't pull, watch the hills, work the gears. And I finished. I did, a, like, a 25-mile ride, and it was a 15-and-a-half miles, the fastest at that point pace that I had ever done. I was getting ready to give myself permission to not make my objective, and then I did better than ever before simply because I switched that little flip in my head. And that's what we try to teach veterans to do, switch that flip in their heads so they can make a better choice right now as to what they're getting ready to do. Uh, That's my contact information, uh, our website, Facebook, and Instagram down there at the bottom. And if there's still some time, I can take some questions. Yes, sir? So veterans need to know about us, that our number one problem is veterans don't know we're there. We have uh, a little proposal that we sent to um, uh, a congressman that we want to try to get put into law that's called the the Push to Pull Act. Right now what happens with transition, it happened when I got out, it happened when Raymond got out. Uh, I don't know if it happened when Milan got out because they were still using stone tablets back then. But... (laughs) That was two. I got one more coming before we're done. <laughs> but, but what, no, I will tell you that. So Mylan's a Vietnam veteran, right? He, he isolated his problems for decades. And I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I encouraged and encouraged and encouraged him. And last year he went to the VA and the VA said, dude, Agent Orange, you're 100% disabled. And so the VA is now providing care and compensation for his injuries that he never asked for in over 40 years. That's the kind of stuff we want to make sure. It doesn't matter how long ago that veteran got out or how recently they got out. We want to make sure they understand what they need to ask for and why it's okay for them to ask for it. So um, back to the push to pull act. When you go through your transition, if you're at Fort Hood, you go through your transition training there. They teach you in two weeks how to be a civilian again. And then they cut you loose, and you go home to Los Angeles or Seattle or wherever you call home, right? But all of the resources and support that they use for that transition training is centered around Colleen, Texas. So if you're a business owner and they do a job fair in Colleen, Texas, why should you support it when you know 80 or 90% of the people that are going to go there are not going to stay in Colleen, Texas, right, or even the Dallas area? So they go somewhere else, and when they get to somewhere else – They don't know what organizations exist. They don't know who to connect with. They're on their own. They're just trying to figure it out. If we can turn that around, because 
Naval Air Station, Fort Hood, Fort Riley, every major city has a military installation that does transition assistance training. They need to go through it where they say they're going to live. If I'm going to go home to live in Dallas, I need to go through my transition training at the Naval Air Station in Fort Worth, not at the one in San Francisco, right? So we're trying to get that flipped around backwards. So in the meantime, to get long answer to your question, veterans need to know that we're here. Until the push-to-pull thing comes into effect, if it ever does, help us let, let veterans know that we're here. The more veterans that come to us, the more resources it takes. So donations always help. We're 501c3. We're going to be 10 years old in January, and, uh, and our total operating budget is about 700000 a year. We've got four employees. We have another four that are contracted that do various things for us. And uh, with that, last year we helped almost 600 veterans with varying degrees of support. And we're going to do more than that this year. Somebody over here had a question in the back? That's not fiction. So... If, if you heard, if you heard what I said, I mean, it's a fictional show, but the scenario is not fiction. So um, if uh, the last thing that somebody who's proud in their profession wants to do is admit that they have a weakness or a failure in that profession, especially when you're in a unit in the military, SEAL Team Ranger, Airborne, that, that you have to go through lots of gates to pass through to get there, the last thing you want to do when you get there is say, well, something hurts or or I'm having trouble sleeping at night because then they're going to take you out of that unit. It's, it's such a privilege to be part of that team. I can't even describe what it's like. So you hide that stuff. You eat that stuff. We, we did um, the end of Desert Storm. I jumped into Kuwait with the 1st Ranger Battalion. We had 450 Rangers that jumped into Ali Al-Salem Airfield, which is just outside of Kuwait City. And peacetime winds 13 knots is the maximum that you can jump. The winds were 33 knots when we jumped that day. And 40, over 40 of the, veteran, the rangers that jumped had to be hospitalized for everything from knocked unconscious to compound fractures to you name it. Uh, I came down so hard that it knocked the wind out of me, and I, it probably started the process that led to my hip replacement. But there's no way I'm going to go, now that I've jumped into a combat zone, I'm not going to go tell somebody that I, I need to leave the team and go get medical help. I'm, I'm going to do everything that I can to complete the mission, which means none of that stuff's going to get documented. The, as we left the assembly area, there were medics there that were handing out Tylenol with codeine. Every man that went by got a Tylenol with codeine because we're getting ready to do a 20-mile forced march through the desert to get to our objective, and everything hurt. So, But... You don't report that stuff. I, I'll give you one more personal example. When I was in ranger school, uh, 1983, which was uh, like, it seems like it was forever ago, but on a parachute jump, I got a static line wrap around my right arm that tore my bicep. If you, if you look at my bicep, it looks like somebody took a spoon and just took a little chunk out. Uh, I was lucky I was wearing a nylon fatigue jacket liner underneath it because it made the static line shift on my arm. Um, I did not report that injury because I didn't want to leave that school, because leaving that school would have meant I couldn't get the ranger qualification, which would have limited my future progress in the Army. So I still have a little bit of elbow weakness because of that injury from long ago that I never got care for. I, a few years ago, I asked the VA, I said, here's the arm. You can see the big divot in my arm. W will you recognize that as a service-connected injury? And they said, no, no evidence. So it's, it's um, when you get to mental health, it's even a greater issue because who wants to tell somebody that they've got something going on in their head? You don't. Uh, and, and, and the VA, 
the VA is better now. They won't. They say they won't turn any veteran away that goes and asks for mental health assistance. But what happens when you go in and you say, I need help, they'll say our next appointment's in 45 days. So when you're going through a crisis, 45 days doesn't cut it. Another question? Sir. So think about being a private in a ranger unit, for instance. Uh, everything that you do is controlled by your team leader. So if you can go see a medic or you can go see a, a, a mental health specialist, but you have to go to your team leader and say, hey, Sergeant, I'm going to go. Don't, I can't tell you where I'm going, but I'm leaving for a couple of hours and I'll be back. That does not happen there. It doesn't happen. Uh, and if you say, I need to go talk to the shrink, then they're going to be like, oh, what's wrong with you? you know, and, and it just is a very macho environment that it, it reinforces the wrong things. And what needs to happen, and I have made this clear when I've talked to them, is it should not be optional. Every single man and woman in that unit should have an hour they have to go and sit down. Even if they play tiddlywinks with that psychiatrist, they're going to spend an hour in there with the door shut. But until something like that happens, that's not going to change. But you can have, there, I think the Commandant of the Marine Corps just came out last week and said, it's okay to ask for help. When you're a four-star general and you're at the top, you can say that. When you're a, a corporal at the bottom, you can't say that because it just, it will destroy your career. Any other questions? One more question. Somebody got to have one more. An opportunity for me to make fun of Milan if there's one more question. Well, thanks so much for letting me fill in this morning. I appreciate it.